to Job. You thought I was going to say Genesis, but this is an audible if you're a football guy. because I have the pastoral liberty to preach to you things that I want to preach to you. How about that? (sighs) I do actually hope that this is personal and pastoral for our church. I didn't draw a name out of a hat, draw a chapter of the Bible out of a hat this week and go, I'm just going to deal a little bit with Job chapter 1 and 2. This really is for us, I believe. So, Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. It's a great summary of what you want your life to be, you know? There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Just think about that. Think about the humility of what Job is doing. Now there was a day when the sons of God, there's that interesting phrase, sons of God again. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord And Satan also came among them. This is one of the reasons why I don't think that that's merely a human phrase um, in Genesis chapter 6, because that's not what's happening here. It's not like a bunch of kings are gathered together and then just Satan's hanging out, you know, as an anomaly among them. These are divine beings. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> You've got to laugh a little. I just laugh a little bit. <laughs> I just, I, it, like in Job's position right now, he has no idea what's about to transpire. He has no idea what's happening. And here's God himself putting Job in Satan's mind. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? You know, Satan's the ultimate cynic, right? Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words... He only fears you because 
You just have blessed him abundantly. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said the fire of God. Now this one's clearer that this is you know, some spiritual power at work. It's not the Sabaeans or in a moment, the Chaldeans, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness struck the four corners of the house that fell upon the young people. They are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, as if that wasn't enough. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, the poor guy, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends, this is the best moment in these three friends' ministry. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zohar the Namathite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. 
They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray. (coughs) Oh God, your ways are far higher than us, all wise and good. You are the Almighty, the maker of the heavens and the earth. You have purposes that we don't always know or understand. And we pray that this morning our faith would be encouraged to trust in your ways and in your purposes. To walk even though you slay us to hope in you. To cast ourselves before your feet with faith and walk and holding fast our integrity not cursing you, turning away from evil. And I pray that you would encourage us as we suffer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you've had essentially a year-long flu, and your son has also, you think about sickness quite a bit more. You know, my biggest fear with COVID was, personally, was that um, it would kind of set off my normal autoimmune problem in a way that was more significant than, you know, what I've been battling for the last five years, off and on, give or take. And I didn't, I didn't expect it to take such a toll on Caleb, but as we learn more, there is a very large number of children who are suffering um, from issues related to COVID. And it can be completely debilitating. And so we kind of assume that this is what we're both dealing with. Mine pre-COVID and made worse from COVID and, and Caleb more specifically related to COVID. And honestly, I have more hope for Caleb's recovery over the next 6 to 12 months than I, I do my own. Um, but uh, because my body was broken long before COVID happened. You know. <clears throat> And I do just want to thank you all for your love and prayers and meals and gifts and generosity and care for our family. It really has just been a gift and a blessing and helped us endure. It really is just kind of like survival mode around our house. I don't know, you know, and I don't know how it's not supposed to be. So there you go. If you judge me for that, you're Job's friends. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes. Sorry about that. I tell our children all the time how special the love is that we have in our church and how it's not normal. It's a real shame that it's not normal in the church of Jesus Christ for you to actually be loved, for people to have real affection for you, for people to actually really care about your life and your well-being, your spiritual life and your spiritual well-being, for people to care about you and your station of life and the things that you're facing and your sins and temptations and how to help you grow and be godly and have faith and all of these things, how to suffer and to stand with you in your suffering. I, it's a mystery to me why that's not more normal. Our love is just so cold, um, but it's a gift to be able to talk to my children about that. 
It's a gift for them to see it. It's a real gift. And I'm thankful my children can see your example of what the church can be. So it hasn't only been our family, but what has become of several or many families in our church over the last couple of years is <clears throat> several, many struggling with various sicknesses and health challenges. And it doesn't seem to be relenting. It doesn't seem to be relenting. And as I've thought about it over the last six months, I, I've thought, it just seems abnormal for a church our size. It's not unheard of, but it does seem abnormal how sickness continues to prevail. Well, prevail may not be the right word, but um, sickness continues to endure and multiply. And I've thought many times, it just seems like the spiritual forces of wickedness are seeking to discourage us all and the work of our church that we are seeking to do for the glory of God. I've just thought that many, many, many times. But I felt kind of timid to just conclude that. You know, it's like you don't want to be the guy who blames Satan for everything. And I've even said, I think to some of you, I feel about 90% sure that the spiritual forces of wickedness are just after us. And it's like I couldn't get there on that last 10% for something, for some reason. I don't know why. I just couldn't. And I, I also don't think that it's surprising that we're in Bloomington and might see an excess of this at times. <clears throat> the spiritual forces of wickedness have a stronghold here that is more than in many other places. And they aren't very interested in the kingdom of God gaining ground. They hate that college students have given up their lives to stay here and grow in maturity and love the church and have children and grow families and advance the gospel. They hate that we open the Bible and deal with truths that tear down the idolatry of the city. They hate the love that we have for one another and how it witnesses to all that we are Jesus' disciples. They would seek to rip it apart with petty, self-centered conflict. They hate it. They hate the worship of the Holy Trinity and that we pray for Bloomington's conversion. They hate us standing against their bloodshed and lies and for proclaiming truth that sets people free from their captivity. They hate that there's growing unity and trust amongst pastors and churches in our town. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. This has never happened really till this year that people will visit our church and I'll say, hey, there's like two or three other places you really should just go and visit as you find your way forward. I mean, that, and, and, and all of those churches are doing the exact same thing. That's never happened before. And it's a gift. It's a very good thing. It's very healthy that there's a trust amongst churches. They hate that men are being fathers. You know, they hate that women are being mothers. They just hate it. And then a friend shared a word 
with me from this book recently, and um, it brought a little bit more of this into focus for me in an encouraging way, and this is really where today's sermon came from. Today's sermon is a quote from a book, and then seeing maybe one of the clearest examples of this in Job's life. And so this book is written by Joe Bailey. It's called The View from a Hearse, The Christian View of Death. Joe lost three children, um, one at 18 months, one at five years, and one at 18 years. And you just think about the nature of the suffering of that as a father, as a family. Think about the siblings growing up around that. You know, and how acquainted with suffering and with death they would be. And probably the right guy to write on a Christian view of death. And I, I would commend this book to you. But in, on page 66, a, a friend read this to me this week. And I just found it extremely encouraging. And I want to encourage you, really with just one simple truth from Job's life. There's a lot that I wrote down in my notes I actually read the whole book of Job yesterday in like three settings, just thinking through this. And I would, inc- I would commend you to read through Job this week. You don't have to do it all in a day like I did, you know. But I would commend it to you this week to read through it and think. And think. Um, in the context that he's writing here, he's writing about uh, how... Christians, it's, it's not really the Christian goal to just only pray for prolonging life. That's not the only goal for Christians to pray. Especially when confronted with sickness and illness. Okay. And so he, you know, and, and then he's commenting about how a Christian really is ambivalent to life or death. There's an ambivalence. I would call it maybe a holy ambivalence. It's the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either one, I'm okay with. That's a a holy ambivalence to life or death. Quote, after writing about, writing that verse from Philippians, for me to live and and Christ to die is gain, about from the Apostle Paul. On a later occasion, faced with imminent death, the Apostle Paul wrote to a godly young pastor, Timothy, In the letter, he did not ask Timothy to pray that he would live rather than be executed. Quote from Scripture, I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand was his reassuring word. (laughs) But he did ask Timothy to bring his cloak because winter was approaching and books to read in the prison. When Stephen was stoned, he did not pray, Lord, keep me from dying so that I may continue to serve you. His prayer was rather, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And kneeling down, he died. These illustrations are all related to the imminent termination of life by violent means through martyrdom. It may be objected by some that they do not apply to ordinary sickness and death. Yet if Satan attempts to thwart a ministry and shorten a life through sickness, his power and work are at least equally as evident as in martyrdom. That's what I want you to get, that last sentence. Yet if Satan attempts to thwart a ministry and shorten a life through sickness, his power and work are at least 
equally as evident as in martyrdom. Now usually we think about martyrdom, we think about persecution, we think about voice of the martyrs, you know, we think about tortured for Christ, we think about government tyranny. Stink bug. Oh, Theo whacked it. Just hit it around like a beach ball. That's all right. Usually we think about persecution. Usually we think about suffering. If you smash it, it's going to smell up the room. <laughs> we think about persecution, suffering for Jesus. We think about martyrdom. And we usually think about it through human means. You know, like the, hum- the particular human means. Even in Job's story, when it was the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, we think that's persecution. But, you know, the, the house collapsing and, um, uh, you know, the fire from heaven, you know, let's say is a little less dramatic circumstantial means. These are just trials. But they're, you know, uh, not in the same category of persecution or suffering for Jesus. Usually we think about tyrannical governments imprisoning Christians. We think about local citizens who are paid to rat out underground churches to the local authorities. We think about evil men killing Christians. We think about standing on a street corner preaching the gospel and people standing there and mocking us. And that's what we think when we those are the kinds of things we think about. We think about Maybe a conflict with our families on a particular stand for truth, and it's a particular stand for truth that is the clearer thing to us that it is persecution, that it is suffering for Jesus, that it is suffering for righteousness' sake. But when Job suffers at the hand of Satan directly, by the purpose and wisdom of God. Is it persecution? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is persecution. Absolutely Job is suffering for Christ. Job is suffering for Jesus. Why? Because he's suffering for righteousness' sake. What is Satan seeking to do? Get him to curse God to his face. Curse God and die. Forsake your faith. He's trying to get him to forsake his faith and forsake his righteousness. And I have to say, I had never thought about Job under with the terms persecution and i had never thought about job with the term terms suffering for jesus yeah those are categories for something else but they're not this is him suffering at the hand of the enemy persecution His family. His family. Suffering martyrdom 
Have you ever thought about it like that? Maybe you have. Maybe I'm the only one who hasn't. But I realize this is what our church faces. We face this. And the amount of sickness, I'm not saying our suffering is quite exactly like Job in every way, that there's not tremendous variance to the suffering across our church even. But the the quality of it isn't the issue. The issue is, where does it come from and why is it there? And so the amount of sickness and just all around weirdness and suffering in our church, it is persecution. It is suffering for Jesus. It is suffering for righteousness' sake in every way that the enemy would seek to stop the work, discourage the work, slow the work, slow, or discourage righteousness, or lead us down a path, or seek to tempt us to lead us down a path of being angry with God for our suffering. All of it is the work of the enemy. So we are suffering for Christ's sake. We are suffering for righteousness' sake. We are suffering for Jesus, and sometimes it's just sickness. And it is directly from the work of the enemy and his minions. You watch. There will be people who come to our church who figure this out and who won't come back very specifically because they're afraid they'll get sick as a part of this congregation. Just watch. I'm telling you, it will happen. Maybe it already has, and we just don't know. Satan's been doing this kind of thing for a long time. So consider Job. What's the the big picture of Job? Job is a righteous man. He is a wealthy man. He is a man blessed of God. He is a man of faith, and he fears God, and he turns away from evil. This is what the text says repeatedly. God gives permission to Satan to take everything but Job's life. And so Satan takes everything. But Job's wife and his friends, who all make his life more miserable. Satan thinks that Job fears God because he's been so blessed by God. But if he takes away everything, he will curse God. That's what Satan thinks. So by God's wisdom and permission, and God's idea, Satan gets to work and Job loses everything. And in all of what takes place in Job's life, Job does not know what has transpired in chapter 1 and 2 of his book. some literary term for it when the reader knows more information than the characters know. That's not my strength. But that's what you have here. That's what you have here. We know. 
Job doesn't know. He doesn't know why this is happening. He wasn't privy to these conversations in the divine council as we are. But Job is suffering persecution. Job is suffering for Jesus, and he is suffering because he's a righteous man. And when you read through Job, if you, if you have any sense about yourself at all, if you're honest with yourself at all, and you read through Job, you can't help but think that Job is way more godly than you. And so, just in case you never caught that, Job is way more godly than you. Job is far more godly than anyone in this church. His righteousness is known far and wide and in the city. And, and even listen to this, Job's, Job's defense of his righteousness that comes across in chapter 29. Let me read it to you. I know we think that if someone defends their righteousness that it's just pride, but that's just not the case always. It can be pride. Job 29, beginning in verse 7, When I went out of the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and later laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed. When the eye saw it, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I search out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand." My roots spread out to the waters with dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. You hear his righteous work in the city amongst the people who were around him, caring for widows, caring for dying, caring for the orphan, caring for those in need, constantly caring for his neighbor, constantly giving wisdom and counsel. Job was a righteous man. He commands respect from the counsel that he dispenses. This is why the princes, men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. Job is wise. Job is wise. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. You ever think about that work of a king amongst his troops? Like one who comforts mourners. This is Job. So what happens if all of a sudden Job's faith is cast off because he's suffering? What happens if Job's righteousness, if he says, forget righteousness, forget my integrity, because he's suffering? 
And Job doesn't make any... When you read through the whole book, you will notice Job understands that this is from God. He understands that this is from God. He doesn't really fully understand the purposes going on. And so he speaks some folly. But he knows this is from God. But what happens then? What happens if he casts off his faith? What happens to his witness for righteousness' sake? What, what, what happens to his reputation to serve the glory of God? What happens to his testimony as one who feared God? What are other people to think if Job casts off righteousness because he's now suffering? If Job now doesn't believe because he's suffering? Think about what would happen with real people. They would mock and say the same thing that Satan said. They would say, oh, Job really only had faith because he was blessed. Job really only had faith because God gave to him. Job really only feared God because of his prosperity. Job was just a fake. Therefore, Job's God is fake. And they would be justified in their unbelief. They would justify themselves in their unbelief and rebellion and pursuit of sin. They would cast off restraint and pursue their evils. And the glory of God would be slandered among them. They will have reason for their unbelief also. And this is Satan's goal, is to take the righteous and make them unrighteous. His goal is to take those who are gods and tempt them to leave their God behind. His goal is to take Christ's church and get Christians to desert His church. His goal is to take the faith of the godly and seek to make it unbelief. That's the work of the enemy. And so when you see things like sickness tempting the saints to this end, you say, Josh, well, this happened to Job, but how do you know this is Satan at work? Look at the fruit. Look at the danger that the saints experience. When the saints are seeking to, are tempted to cast off their faith or cast off their righteousness or curse God, who is at work doing that? All of what he is doing is persecution. All of what Job is experiencing is suffering for Jesus. And this is the same with us. I can't point you to a page of Scripture that says, and there was a meeting in the Divine Council 
And Satan was going to and fro on the earth. And God said, how about Bloomington Bible Church? I don't know exactly how that all went down. I just know the fruit of it is there. And we have discernment, do we not? God has given us discernment to know the ways of the enemy. And guess what? To actually know the ways of the enemy sometimes better. To know God's wisdom better than the enemy. So it encouraged me to think about what Job is experiencing and what we are experiencing together as persecution and suffering for Jesus in terms that I hadn't put together before. And that's the only point I want to make today. That's it. With a couple concluding thoughts. Our suffering for righteousness' sake at the hands of the enemy gives endless meaning and joy to our suffering. It's never meaningless, and it's never hopeless. We just never thought that when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that all of the godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted would ever look like this. He wants to stop what glorifies God in you. And one of the things that glorifies God the most is when you bless God's name in suffering. Because you glorify the wisdom and goodness and worthiness of God above all things. So why don't you bless God when you're suffering, when you feel like you're suffering at the hands of your spouse? Why don't we bless God through the sickness and display that His wisdom triumphs over the wisdom of the enemy who thinks that when a Christian suffers, he will curse God and die. And if He's after us as a church, then we have reason to rejoice that God is getting glory through our life together. We have reason to rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. While Satan slanders us and accuses us falsely and witnesses against us falsely, they just really only fear you because of their prosperity. And so rather than hating our suffering, we submit ourselves to God. And we rejoice because He has purposes for our suffering that He knows very 
very well. And when you don't know the purposes for your suffering, it's okay because you entrust yourself to the God who does. I'm not sure exactly how to say what Job got wrong. He got far less wrong than you think he got wrong because you guys are all like Job's friends. He got far less wrong than you think he got wrong. But I wonder if what Job got wrong was that he didn't understand he was actually just being persecuted. And so in many words, he tried to explain these things and he kind of was put back in his place to say Job. My purpose is just bigger than what you're, where your head is going right now. You know, when Job says he has suffered without cause and these kinds of things. Oh, God has a cause. And God confounds the enemy and confounds the world by Job not cursing God and dying while he's suffering and continuing to bless the Lord. So rather than hating our suffering, we submit ourselves to God because He has purposes for our suffering that He knows very well even when we don't. It's not meaningless even when we don't know the meaning. You know, it's like if I could just get our marriages, if I could just, you know, get the Holy Spirit to work faster in your husband or your wife, you know? Why hasn't the Holy Spirit sped that process up? It's not meaningless even when it feels meaningless. So get your eyes back on the Lord and do what God wants you to do. Submit yourself to God and keep doing what's right. Trust that God's purpose for why He hasn't fixed everything for you is higher than what you can figure out sometimes. Our suffering for righteousness' sake gives meaning and joy to our suffering. And it's not meaningless, even if we don't know the meaning. And finally, this Job's story witnesses to us of the unbreakable nature of genuine faith. We don't have to know all the reasons for our suffering. 
except that in Job's story, and you read the end, you know, and Job finally silences himself and repents in dust and ashes and said, he does speak of things without knowledge. But Job is restored. He's given more children. He's restored and uh, beyond whatever he, what he ever had in the beginning. Job does not curse God and die as Satan aims. God wins, and God gets glory over the wisdom of the enemy. Because Job's faith is unbreakable. Christian faith is unbreakable. What I don't mean to say by that is that it doesn't have doubts, and it doesn't have uncertainties, and it doesn't have questions, and it doesn't have, you know, I'm not saying it's some perfect, steady thing all the time, but ultimately, genuine faith is unbreakable, whether God gives or whether God takes away. Whether you have prosperity or poverty, whether you have health or sickness, Christian faith is unbreakable. Job does not curse God and die. Job does not experience suffering and become apostate, ultimately rejecting God and His Christ. This is the thing that vexes the world. How can you suffer and bless God at the same time? And yet, this is the wisdom of God. And who is our Christ but the wisdom of God who suffered for righteousness' sake? Ultimately triumphing over the enemy that by His death, His people are made His own. God is witnessing to Satan and to the whole world of his wisdom that genuine faith is unbreakable. That God's own will be his own whatever Satan does to them. God's own will be God's own whatever Satan does to them. Their faith is unbreakable because God is keeping them. And God is keeping you. Of course it doesn't mean there won't be trouble and doubts and difficulties and uncertainties and unbelief. Right? It's like, oh God, help my unbelief. But ultimately, the faith that saves will be kept. And it's unbreakable, even if Satan would take everything from us. So God's wisdom prevails over the enemy. And Christians bless God's name whether he gives or whether he takes away. And sometimes that persecution is bodily ailment and sickness. Yet if Satan attempts to thwart a ministry and shorten a life through sickness, his power and work are at least equally as evident as in martyrdom.
Father, thank you for this encouragement that you keep us, that you are the guardian of our faith, and that it is precious not just to us, but it is to you, because you shed the blood of your very own Son to give it to us. Thank you for being so gracious and so merciful, that for giving us a faith that's unbreakable, and for uh, your wisdom that is beyond ours. Help us not to peer too far into things beyond what we ought when we ought to just be silent before you and entrust ourselves to your purposes and to your ways with us. Help us endure the work of the enemy to resist the evil one, to entrust ourselves to you, that you will work, that you will work in great power through great weaknesses, through ailments and sicknesses, through sufferings, For your name's sake. More than anything, I pray in our church for the heart that submits itself to you, whether in prosperity or poverty, whether you have given or taken, that your name would be praised, blessed, honored, worshipped, glorified. You are the Most High, all good and all wise, and we are yours. And we trust you. Help us trust you. When we're unbelieving, help our unbelief. We cast ourselves at your feet for you to do what you will with us for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.